Good afternoon from the campus of the University of Chicago. This is the Grok Science Show. I am Emma Wyatt, your host for today. On the show, we have a local guest, esteemed researcher and physician, Dr. Melissa Gilliam. Dr. Gilliam is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology here at the University of Chicago at the Medical Center. She is also section chief for family planning and contraceptive research. Dr. Gilliam has a variety of research projects ongoing. Her work focuses on adolescent attitudes towards sexual activity, pregnancy, and contraception. She specifically works with members of the Latina and African American populations and their experiences with unintended pregnancies, repeat pregnancies, and oral contraceptions. She is a practicing clinician and an active researcher. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Gilliam. So, um, Dr. Gilliam, your specialty is in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. I will be frank to say that I wasn't exactly aware of the subdivision of the field until looking further into your work. So, can you tell us a little bit about this division in gynecology um, based on age group and, and why it's important and how your specialty differs from what we might be more familiar with? Sure. So um, pediatric and adolescent gynecology is a relatively new subspecialty. Not a lot of people are involved in it. And um, they're in medicine, there are the formal subspecialties and then the informal. And pediatric gynecology is an informal subspecialty, meaning that people mainly focus on it and work through subspecialty organizations and uh, professional organizations to develop skills. And so there's a collaborative network around it. Okay. And then eventually you kind of segue into it after um, training through residency and uh, post-residency uh, post training and focus. Mm -hmm. The reason it matters is because a lot of the way that we examine young people um, is different than the way we examine older people. And also when you think about developmentally and cognitively, um, children and young adults are just different than um, full adults. And so the recommendations and the recommendations for care and the surgical approaches and the examination approaches are, are different. And so. Um, because pediatrics isn't a surgical specialty, mm -hmm. they can't, uh, it can't be part of pediatrics, even mm -hmm. though there is adolescent medicine. Um, so gynecology and focus on pediatric and adolescent gynecology fills that niche. Okay. And you are both a, a practicing clinician right. and a researcher, right. which seems to be sort of the, the perfect blend of being able to apply your science and also perform research, but it seems like it also would be very demanding. <laughs> so I was just wondering how you how you go about devoting yourself to both things simultaneously. Right. Seems. So um, I think your your first statement is exactly right, but it also works um, even the in the other direction. So okay. um, clinical care is a great place for generating hypotheses about human behavior. Mm. So there are a number of things that observe in a clinical interaction or people say to you or people find or outcomes, uh, clinical outcomes or phenomena that you look at and you say, that's an area for study. This is a really important thing to look at. Yeah. And then also things that you discover in research, this idea of thinking about how do you translate it back up to people and um, human 
and to really change lives and improve lives, then it's perfect that you mm -hmm. have this connection to people. Um, so that part works really well. Um, it is really important to compartmentalize <laughs> what you do. Um, so, um, and there are days when you uh, really focus on your clinical work and answer all sorts of phone calls and do that, and then as soon as you're done, you're very much done, and you're completely focused on research. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we sort of laugh and we say doctors have this really great ability to completely block things out. <laughs> no, it's, that's excellent. So one of the main differences between studying adolescent gynecology and adult um, could be they're just in a different stage um, mentally, cognitively, adolescents are compared to adults. Is a portion of your research involved at all with looking at the maturation of the human brain as it corresponds at all to sexual maturity and are there regions of the brain that you or researchers in the field particularly um, focus on? when looking at sexual maturation? Um, so it's actually a very timely question because um, one of the things that I am involved in is really focusing on creating interdisciplinary research around sexual and reproductive health. Um, so within gynecology, um, we're not as focused on sort of thinking about the regions of the brain, but sure. we just... Um, just was uh, submitted a, a research proposal really starting to try to think through um, what is what parts of the brain are involved in uh, decision making and risk taking mm -hmm. um, behaviors specifically we were looking at risk avoidance behavior around HIV um, and there's a thought that that one of the um, one of the issues may be less uh, less developed um, frontal lobe, and so is there less executive reasoning and executive functioning in early adolescence, so that you have less inhibition of behaviors that may put um, young people at higher risk for risk-taking behaviors. Um, the other question is this: maybe um, if that's so, this then when we think about how do we educate young people about sex or um, avoidance behavior. Um, this idea of sort of appealing to just pure knowledge um, is is problematic. Um, the other question: Well, maybe these are more um, more kind of affective or um, emotional or sensational um, mm. parts of the brain um, are triggered. So um, perhaps we should be thinking at that level. Um, some people have argued that if you look at the adolescent brain um, and think about it at different stages, then um, this idea of talking to adolescents about um, kind of the future isn't um, as as operative, but perhaps consequences um, might be, and with concrete examples of the consequences, um, might be might resonate more more with you. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, a topic I was going to ask you about a little bit because in in psychology, particularly behavioral economics, they talk about delayed discounting or this difficulty that um, people have, even even adults have, with putting much stock in future consequences, um, whether they be even benefits, benefits or risks associated with the behavior. So it was definitely something I, I wanted to touch on, should abstinence campaigns and things like that, are they really focused on stressing the right risks right. for adolescents, given that they have slightly more difficulty with, well, they just have a different um, 
representation of, of time, even, right. um, up to a certain age. So, so. Well, I think um, that particular question, again, is really exciting for me at this time. Mm -hmm. And so the um, study that we just put forward, we have, um, we have a behavioral economist. We have, Do you? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> right. We have, so we're really looking at, you know, what does be, or you know, hopefully we're funded, but we, mm -hmm. you know, our real question is, what does, um, what does uh, cognitive neuroscience, what does, uh, what do behavioral um, economics, what does um, psychiatry and social science and clinical medicine, if we come together, what do we have to say about how the brain functions with decision making? And I think this, the um, study that we designed is perfect, um, is the perfect way to answer this question because we're looking at functional MRIs, we're looking at actually lab-based testing and things like delayed discounting, okay. and looking at it longitudinally over time, and then looking at behaviors and trying to see could we predict problem behaviors and sexual risk behaviors um, in youth from early adolescence through later adolescence. Um, and I think um, where your question is probably what is is probably what we'll find is that um, these and I will say this, probably well-intentioned mm -hmm. um, campaigns around things like abstinence only, right? Yeah. I mean, I think people just want kids not to be pregnant. That's <laughs> sure. my generous uh, 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 depiction of um, those particular campaigns. <laughs> sure. But um, this kind of all or none mm -hmm. um, doesn't really work with you. This idea that there will be terrible consequences um, doesn't really uh, rate with, um, with you. Right. Because most things aren't. That goes through. That sounds like a STI. The University of Chicago and its medical center are located in Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago that um, is, correct me if I'm wrong, an underserved, overall underserved in terms of um, health care. And, and there is higher concentration of minorities here in Hyde Park. Do you find that culture plays a role, and perhaps even to the extent of focusing young people on different risks? So, um, the so the characteristic characterization of Hyde Park, Hyde Park is hard. Hyde Park itself is quite affluent, um, but yeah, uh, the surrounding yeah, South okay. Side, right, is um, of Chicago, and the um, and the communities that comprise the South. Uh, side of Chicago have some of the highest rates of sexually transmitted infections, HIV, yeah. pregnancy, low income, predominantly African American with some Latino pop populations. Um, so what is culture is always sure. a difficult yeah. question, but I think what um, what is clear is that there are social and economic determinants of health and um, social and economic determinants of um, health outcomes and beliefs and attitudes, and certainly culture, to the extent that we know what culture is, um, yeah. plays a large role. Um, I've done a lot of research um, among African American and Latinos to really try and think about cultural differences in attitudes around um, sexuality, contraceptive use, behaviors, pregnancy, um, and I think it's really critical to understand um, what those factors are and values are. Um, in some communities, pregnancy and early childbearing um, has a different status and different weight than in others. Sure. Um, some people, people like Arlene Geronimus, would argue that um, perhaps 
it's not as salient a belief that teen pregnancy is to be avoided in some communities. I don't totally um, agree with that. I think that when I've done surveys in formal or formal surveys of parents, one of the most important things for them is that their youth avoid early pregnancy and um, and graduate college. Okay. But there is certainly, um, there are communities where there are much higher rates of adolescent pregnancy and a much um, greater capacity to absorb early childbearing. Um, so these differences are really important and certainly in terms of um, attitudes and beliefs about contraception and mm -hmm. concerns about side mm -hmm. effects and trust of a medical system and medical mistrust. Um, so we've often started off where um, much of my uh, research starts off uh, with qualitative research to really start to understand um, values and beliefs around uh, pregnancy and sexuality and gender and so um, surveys things you go out into the community and yeah, so with qualitative, they're really, um, we use focus groups or in-depth okay. interviews, and we sort of ask what questions should we be asking, okay. um, and then we build those into surveys, and then some, we often will um, look at those variables in larger national surveys. Um, sometimes the data's already been collected, but we create, um, we kind of think about what research domains we should be using based on our understanding of, of cultural okay. and social values. Wow, <laughs> and I, I hear stressed in the in the news media a lot the role of parents in terms of influencing teen sexual behaviors, how parents being involved. So, what ha, have you have you studied at all? Um, whether parental involvement is is it really effective? Is there data backing that? Sure. Up? So there's um, the data on parental involvement is actually very good, meaning that. When parents communicate um, at an early age with their children, when they have um, what's perceived by, by the youth as good communication, mm -hmm. that's associated with a lot of positive health behaviors, delayed sexual initiation. Um, we've done a study among Latina, Mexican-American in particular, um, parents who um, are very clear about their expectation in terms of future um, okay. and college and education, that that's associated with the delayed onset of sexual um, debut. Hmm. Um, open communication is um, associated with less likelihood of having STIs, earlier use of condoms, less likelihood of abortion. However, and so um, parental involvement and parental communication is really, really critical. Okay. However, most medical organizations um, do not believe that there should be forced communication. And so if you look at, for example, the way that I practice medicine, the adolescent has the right to confidential care. There are a number of states that will tell you whether that applies to whether they can get contraception without parental consent, but that's a lot. It's over 30 states. Okay. Um, almost every state, um, an adolescent can get STI care without parental consent, and then um, parental notification for abortion is, ha is available in many fewer states. Mm -hmm. um, can a youth get an abortion without a parent being notified? Okay. And so we've just cut conducted a series of policy studies around this issue of parental notification, parent-daughter communication, um, and I think the irony is that um, it seems for parental notification, it's pretty much the horse is out of the barn by that yeah. point. It's okay. a kind of a, this idea that it will improve health outcomes or lower abortion rates um, 
or you know facilitate the adolescent parent experience mm -hmm. that at the time of the abortion seems to be the wrong time. Okay. What the research shows is that, that before the procedure, baseline communication is far more important. Okay. And so we just did a study looking at that on the south side of Chicago, um, surveying adolescents, how much do they communicate with their parents mm -hmm. about sex, abortion. Um, the answer is uh, not that not that much. Not that much, um, yeah. And that it was the, the mothers who themselves experienced an early pregnancy were the most likely to communicate with their daughters. Really? Yeah, so it kind of gives you a, a sense that despite how much parents want these things, they, you know, it's it's a frightening thing for parents to yeah. do for their kids. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. There's, we don't get training in that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, speaking of abortion, I, um, I did want to ask you if you were familiar with the with the comments made a couple weeks ago, I think now, by Senator John Kyle um, from Arizona concerning the abortion rates at Planned Parenthood. Way off the mark, saying something like uh, abortions were 90-some percent of, of what mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood does in terms of procedures. And made fun of quite a bit after that by um, Stephen Colbert in terms of um, he then coming back and saying it was not intended to be a factual statement. But um, in any case, so um, Planned Parenthood provides a much-needed service in certain areas of the U.S., just in, in underserved and medically underserved communities in terms of routine exams, um, gynecological exams, um, testing for STDs, and that type of thing around the country. So I was wondering if you encountered Planned Parenthood in your research, if Planned Parenthood is, is a service that's used a lot in the Hyde Park region, and sort of what your opinion is um, regarding sure. it as a service. So right now, so we work um, very closely with Planned Parenthood. Right now we mm -hmm. are conducting a research study. Um, it's a federally funded study looking at service delivery around contraception. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of a service delivery quality um, quality, uh, understanding quality uh, research. And what I really appreciate is, one, exactly what you've said, this is an organization that is filling a huge niche. When I look at what it's like to come into a large medical center for routine care versus what it's like to be able to stop by a place on your on a, on a corner yeah. near your home, it's immense. Um, just logistically parking the the comfort that someone's going to be completely geared towards what you're there for. It's huge. Um, primary and preventive care in low-income communities is tr a tremendous problem. And so here's an organization that has things like sliding scale payment. They take, they do all of the necessary work to make sure that they have Title X funding so that people can get affordable health care. They've been one of the most aggressive organizations to really use the waiver system in Illinois, helping more women get access to Medicaid. So it's just this incredibly important preventive health care for everything from vaccines to STD testing. And when we think about things like STDs, the biggest thing is to break the network of people who are passing chlamydia and gonorrhea mm -hmm. back and forth. And so the more barriers we put up to actually getting tested and getting treated, the more likely we are to have widespread infections. If that happens, that 
increases people in tertiary care systems with serious infections. So mm -hmm. it's incredibly short-sighted to um, to basically throw out misinformation at an organization that at so many levels is providing such um, a necessary service. And one of the things that I've been so impressed by just in this particular study that we're doing, um, we're kind of trying to understand best practices for service delivery um, around contraceptive um, and for adolescents, is the quality of service delivery. Really? It is so impressive um, how well-focused and how thoughtful and how quick to adopt guidelines. Um, and in um, in two weeks, I'll be working with the CDC to look at Title X um, guidelines for Title X care. And I just think, well, I feel like I have all of these examples of how to create best practices and teen-friendly services to really um, get patients what they need in terms of clinical care. So um, for me, um, those types of political statements that don't fix a problem and they don't fix an economic problem. They sort of kick the can down the road so mm -hmm. that we'll just have people with more applications. It's really concerning. Um, in you know, in the ideal situation is that um, we have people on the front lines providing primary preventive care um, so that when they get to a tertiary care system like the University of Chicago, then they're able, then we're just taking care of the people who really have a problem that couldn't have been prevented. Um, but sure. as, if we erode those systems, it's, it's problematic for all involved, and it costs us a lot more money. Mm -hmm. So I, I did want to touch a little bit on more local issues <laughs> um, related to campus. I actually um, I found you and your work because I started searching around once I got wind of something called uchicagohookups.com, sort of a, a very recent and somewhat disturbing um, website. So it's now, uh, it's basically a social network uh, for sexual hookups on college campuses, sort of a no-strings-attached type deal. But I wonder if you have any thoughts about, not specifically this um, hookups website, but the role of social media um, social networking in terms of young people developing their sexual identity and gender. So um, this is a, this is a really big area of interest for us. Um, not necessarily uh, that website, so mm -hmm. I'm just glad you told me about it. We, uh, two years ago, had a conference on uh, new digital media and, um, and youth development and specifically interested in um, youth of color. Um, but what we, um, what we used the, the conference for was to bring researchers in from across the country to present research on how social media is affecting youth and youth relationships, and then ended up um, publishing a special edition of a journal, um, and then launching our own project um, on starting to try to understand new media and uh, new digital media also as a tool for starting to increase education. Sure. Um, you know, so certainly there is a fluidity uh, among youth and their ability to enter into kind of a mediated world versus the real world right. and, um, and those boundaries are, are very fluid. Um, and there is a way in which um, 
ideas that often that may not be played out face to face or played out in the mediated world, and they kind mm -hmm. of move um, seamlessly from one to another. Um, I'll meet you, you know. I'll text you when I'll meet you. At what time I'll meet you? We'll see you. We'll we'll text <laughs> back and forth. So it's you sure. know it really is this kind of interesting seamless. Mm -hmm. um, we've been starting to work with um, more high school aged um, young people looking at how they use um, digital media, how they use digital media to seek help information. Okay. And one of the things that's been very interesting for us is to notice that often um, they're not so good at it. Oh, okay. um, and not because they lack um, skills, but because sometimes the words they use, mm -hmm. the things they're looking for, are not adults have created sites that are, don't speak to them or resonate with them. So they're okay. searching on a term that is meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. and. It's not on the website. Okay. Um, as a result, we've kind of um, we've taken a huge step backwards um, and sort of said maybe our way of thinking about how to provide information to youth is incorrect. And mm -hmm. so um, we've started trying to better understand the context. Um, and so we just completed a digital storytelling workshop um, where we had youth through narrative and um, photographs talk about their lives and issues of sexuality and gender, um, neighborhood con context, violence, um, parent relationships, huge sense of abandonment by a lot of parents. Okay. But I think until we start to understand the language, the um, context, the, um, the things that really matter, the way that um, young people portray their lives and mm -hmm. think about their lives, I think we're going to have trouble creating curriculum and um, ideas that are um, meaningful for them. Um, the project that we're starting for the summer is on transmedi transmedia games, so really thinking about um, creating games, like almost taking advantage of the immersive environment yes, right. of games, um, but also but having you, through narrative, think about what the context of those games are, what are meaningful, but then to try to move that towards thinking through health and positive health behaviors. Um, so it's ambitious in many ways, but I think it's probably the way that um, we should be doing this. I think abstinence only is simplistic. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you sort of have this all or none conversation and then people are sort of saying, oh, well, we're just going to use social networks to hook up. <laughs> There's all of these very complex social relationships that people have to use this time to work out, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, kind of trying to leapfrog over it. Um, has for ages gotten people into trouble. Right. Um, and I think that that's in some of our research with um, low-income youth on the South Side, it is that leaping over it um, that has been um, has been so problematic um, that, and we see this, we see pregnancies occurring in the, in, without, outside of the context of relationships, and so you know, we have we have a cohort now of adolescent mothers. Very few of them that ever um, result in a long-term relationship. So there are these necessary process steps that people have to go through for relationship development, and mm, um, and so our goal is, you know, how do we start to think about decision making and all of these other really important developmental milestones within the context of new digital media or gaming or other um, other approaches? Right. Yeah. Well. Something you just said got me thinking. Uh, it seems that sexual behavior at a young age, when someone is perhaps cognitively not as well equipped to make the right decisions as they should be, but physically 
matured. Exploration of their sexuality is part of establishing sexual identity. Right. Um, is that is that true, or is that just something no, no, that no, seems like it should be true? No, no, it's absolutely true, and okay. it's a very you know. So we have this kind of um, funny convergence of issues. You know, we have this idea that we we want safe outcomes and good outcomes for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a society that is. Um, very kind of frightened about these issues, mm-hmm. and so our um, our tendency is not to talk about um, not to talk about sex, not to talk about sexuality, and not to think about it as a nat- natural part of um, of being or part of who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes just to kind of reorient myself and kind of get my bearing. I look at um, European societies, which have the lowest rates of teen pregnancies, have high rates of um, effective contraceptive use, have um, very overall very healthy um, sexual health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I think as we get kind of afraid to talk to our, talk to young people or afraid of um, having young people feel good and positive about who they are um, and where they are in their lives. And um, I remember, you know, I say, yeah. you know what, other countries have done this well and actually have better health outcomes than we do and are not dealing, do not have, um, we have now the second, I think there's one Eastern European country with a higher teen pregnancy rate than oh we have, uh, but okay. we have the highest rate of teen pregnancy among developed countries. We have a heterogeneous society, I understand there are complexities to it, but um, in no other part of our lives do we say that knowledge, or I mean, maybe some people do, but um, in my general philosophy, I think of knowledge as being positive and mm-hmm. so an important thing. And so I think we have to um, think about those same things in terms of sexual health. And as I talk to young people and as we do work with young people, we can deny it, but the reality is um, that is where they are, that's what they're experiencing, and so we have to give them the tools to work through it rather than on blinders and hoping it goes away and then we look up and we cry when they're pregnant or have it. That was important. Thanks so much. You were so very welcome. I really appreciate it. Yeah.